me everything that is said that comes out of my mouth, Lord, be of you. That you would increase, that your people would fall deeper in love with you. Father, you've made it painfully obvious how much of a sinner I am and how little I deserve to be part of your family. Lord, may you be glorified by the preaching of your word through the sacrifice of your son and the edification of your saints. Pray this in Jesus' name. John chapter 19, verses 17 through 27. Not an easy place to read or to preach from. But there is divine truth here that we must grasp. We must grasp. There's a question that must be asked and answered because of this. And if you've ever gone to the doctor and had the doctor give you one of those eye exams where he tells you, now don't move your head, keep your head still, but just follow my finger with your eyes. And he moves it to the left and to the right and to up and down. This section of scripture kind of does the same thing. The Lord, through his word, has us doing the same sort of thing. Kind of like that uh, that eye exam. In the first part, verses 17 and 18, that divine physician desires us to look at Christ. We are to look straight ahead. Look at Jesus and the events at hand. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. That flogging of Jesus, the extreme beating that he had endured about an hour or so ago was described to us in verse 1 with just seven words. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And here, the most obscene means of execution that man has ever created has explained to us, in four words. There they crucified him. Crucifixions were so common in the first century, the floggings that preceded them, that they really didn't need to be explained. Didn't need to be explained to the people under Roman rule because they lived this. They saw this. But this is not why the Gospels are so sparse in their description of the torture and death as Jesus moved from being the Lamb of God to being the Passover lamb, inspected and then prepared to be the atonement for our sin. The reasons the Gospels are so sparse 
why they seemingly so casually just mentioned the flogging and the crucifixion is because this was not the price that was paid for our sins. Many people died in this manner in that day. And they should die for their sins. But it wasn't so for the Christ. Because he was sinless. And he remained sinless. Even during the flogging. Even when he was made to carry the instrument of his death. Being publicly scourged and humiliated all along the way. But since this is true. Why is there so little give, detail given concerning the preparation of the Lamb of God and becoming the Passover Lamb? Why don't the Gospels tell us more of his suffering? We think that Mel Gibson was right in making the Passion of the Christ and allowing us to wonder at the suffering of the Christ on our behalf. But where humans have spoken volumes, the Gospels have given us few words. And they did this because they are nothing. What happened? That flogging, that crucifixion is nothing compared to what is to come. They're mere paper cuts in comparison to the price that will be paid to free us from our slavery of sin. They're a bug bite when compared to the separation that the Christ, the Son of Man, the Son of God will endure to become the Passover lamb for us. This is why so little is said of these events. We are not to be captivated by them. We are to mourn over the price paid for the sinless, spotless Lamb of God to be inspected and prepared to become the Passover Lamb for us. But they are not the payment for our sins. That price, the ultimate price to allow you and me to be here as sons of God, is not spoken of in our verses today. And in verse 17, we're told, and he went out bearing his own cross. But in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we're told that this isn't so. In all of them, we're told that he, another person carried his cross to the hill called Golgotha, to Calvary. Mark 15 Verse 21 says, Now Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the countries, and the soldiers forced him to carry the cross of Jesus. So what are we to make of this? Is this just one more of those inconsistencies of the Bible? Are we just to gloss over this and move on? Or do we just explain it by the fact that Jesus carried the cross beam at least part of the way, as we can determine from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, verse 26. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. So technically, Jesus did carry the beam at least part of the way. And then they crucified him. And this gospel is silent concerning the other two men who were crucified, one on either side of Christ. And in the movies, they are merely tied to the cross. They don't suffer the same fate as Jesus. And this is all make-believe. 
man-made inventions in an attempt to separate Jesus and his suffering from these two men. But those two men suffered just as Jesus did and would die on that cross just as Jesus did. But he was placed in the center, in the front and center of them, in order that he could be best seen and more easily be mocked and ridiculed by the crowd that gathered to watch that morning's main event. And don't allow yourself to think that Jesus hung 10 feet off the ground. That's simply more fantasy that you have in your head. More man-made traditions because the movies portrayed it that way. Wood was scarce in that part of the world, and it still is. And part of the fun of crucifixion was the ability to reach out and touch the individuals that were, be, were publicly being humiliated. As they had packs of animals biting at their legs and feet, being literally eaten alive. Pilate has seemingly been an unwilling participant in all these events. That's not to say that he isn't innocent of the death and torture of Christ, because he is. He could have at any point stopped this thing. He could have ended it with just one single word. But he chose himself over the man that he has publicly stated is innocent at least three separate occasions. But as a coup de grace to the religious leaders who he hated, he had a sign made for Jesus. Verse 19, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. But more importantly, that divine physician now desires us to look up. To look above the head of Christ. To move our focus off of him for a brief moment, and to the sign that hung above his head. Having a plaque made wasn't unique for Christ. Many victims had the crimes that they were, uh, that they were convicted for hung around their neck to warn others they would think of breaking that law, or they would have them nailed above their head for the same reason. But what Pilate did in making this plaque was to state the charge levied against Jesus by the religious leaders, the crime that he had committed that had brought him to that moment. That crime, that sin, none. He was merely fulfilling the office that he himself had been party to creating. He, alongside of the Father and the Spirit, were all party to the creation of this universe the creation of man, and the creation of the plan of redemption for all that he has chosen to redeem. And as we read in verses 20 through 22, this king that is hanging on that cross is still king over all. Not just those that believe in him or even those that love him. He rules over all creation. Verse 20 Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic and in Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Don't write king of the Jews, but rather this man said I'm the king of the Jews. But Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. And just as those words that Caiaphas had uttered were prophetic concerning this man, when he had told the religious leaders that they knew nothing, that it was better for one man to die for the people, here too, this title that was hung, and it was written and hung over Jesus by Pilate, is prophetic in nature. And in both cases, neither man knew it or meant it to be that way. 
And we should never be confused when the Lord uses the unregenerate for his purposes. We shouldn't think that's so weird because this entire account is filled with the unregenerate being used to fulfill the plan in hand of God. And what Pilate wrote on this plaque was more than likely intended by him to be a mockery of the religious leaders specifically, but also the entire Jewish nation as well. But what he didn't know, what he couldn't understand, was that the millions of people who were in Jerusalem for the Passover, that they would read that inscription. Or they would hear of it. And since it was written in all the major dialects of that region, or that religion, uh, region of that day, they would understand what was written on it. They would understand the title that was given this man who was being crucified. And then the very strange series of events that would occur on that day and the days that followed. And they would take those accounts back home with them, spreading the name of Jesus unintentionally planting the seeds of the gospel that would soon germinate and sprout when the Holy Spirit begins his work of illuminating the word in the hearts of the people who have been given to this king of the Jews that was now hanging on that cross. And beginning in verse 23, the divine physician now desires us to take our eyes off that plaque and look down. Not to Christ, who's hanging nailed on the tree, but to the ground at his feet and the events that were taking place even as he suffered. Verse 23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, each one for, uh, for each soldier. Also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothes they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. The sun has been lifted up. Just as he told Nicodemus back in chapter 3 that he would be. And at the foot of the cross, where not far away there stood two groups of people. That's what we're told about in our account. There's actually three groups of people on that day. We've got the soldiers who were supremely disinterested in the, in the suffering that was taking place. The ones that we're told of in verses 23 through 25. And then there were those people that loved this man. Those that were told of in verse 25. And that third group the one that is described to us in Matthew 27, verses 38 through, 44, for 38 through 44. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Or, if you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and then we will believe in him. Or, he trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. 
And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. But that first group, those soldiers, did something that was really strange. It doesn't make much sense. They divided the garments and possessions of the men they have nailed to the cross. I, I'm sure that there are some instances where those objects could have had some street value. But since these victims have been previously stripped naked to be flogged, have been forced to carry the crossbeam of, the, uh, of their instrument of torture and death, still naked from the city, there really couldn't have been much worldly value in the personal effects that these men have had. There's very little, there's very little description of that flogging, even less of the actual crucifixion, which should cause us to take notice where details are given in our account, such as that description of the inscription of that plaque. And then the details concerning the tunic of Christ. Because the details giving concerning the plaque are given to prepare us for the coming of the harvesting of souls that's about to be purchased. And then the details given us concerning his clothes are given us to cause us to remember who this man hanging on that cross is. That the garment was seamless, woven in one piece from the top to bottom, it doesn't mean much to us. Big deal, we wonder, as we read it. And there's some in our generation that will take this verse and they will use this detail as proof that Christ was in fact a wealthy man, that he had fancy clothes. And they use that verse, this verse, as their explanation of why they must have their Rolex watch, their Gucci suit, and their Gulfstream jet. But the details given us here, while they don't mean much to us, they would have meant a lot to the Jewish people in that first century. Because the description is given to us to cause us to think of the royal priestly garments that are worn. That first adjective given to describe that garment, woven, only occurs in the Old Testament when spoken of the priestly garments as commanded by God, such in Exodus 28.6. And the fact that it couldn't be, written, couldn't be torn. In Leviticus 21.10, the priests were forbidden ever to tear their garments, even in mourning. So we've been forced to see, to read that inscription that Jesus is king of the Jews. And now we're being forced to understand that he is not only the king, but he is the fact, the high priest. The one that is the priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek is told to us in Hebrews 5.6. And as the four soldiers cast lots for his meager belongings, there stood four women, mourning. Verse 25 is one of those specific details of this account. The four soldiers who nailed Jesus to the cross aren't named, nor are there any other mourners or followers of Jesus who were on hand. But two of the women are named. Here's verse 25 once again. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. The first two women aren't named. In fact, the mother of Jesus is never named in the Gospel of John. And this is the only, the second time that she is mentioned specifically in this Gospel. The first being at that wedding in Cana, where he had first told her that his hour was not at hand. And the second woman mentioned would have been his aunt on his mother's side. 
And then the last two women, the ones that are mentioned, those two are, are mentioned by name. Mary, the wife of Clopas. Well, who is she? Why does she get a mention here? Well, according to early Christian traditions, Clopas was the brother of Joseph, who is the husband of Mary, the stepdad of Jesus. And after the resurrection and ascension, after the events of Pentecost, it would be James, the half-brother of Jesus, who would be the leader of the most influential church of that region, of that time. And that, tr that church was the church of Jerusalem. And after his death, it was Simon who became head of that church in Jerusalem. Simon is the nephew of James, the son of Clopas, the son of Mary, the wife of Clopas, the aunt of Jesus on his father's side. Simon was the cousin of Jesus. And that last woman mentioned is Mary Magdalene. Now, if you watch any movies or read much of the books that are written around the accounts of the life and death of Jesus, that woman has been made much of. But just to suffice, suffice it to say that the reason that she gets a byline here is only for one reason. It's because she is one of the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection of this man who's about to die. She becomes an apostle to the apostles because she is one of the first that actually sees the risen Christ. That's why she's mentioned here. And then in verses 26 and 27, we're forced by that great high physician to look one last time to Jesus and then to focus in on what it is that he is focusing in on. Verse 26, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Think of this. Try to wrap your brain around this account. This man who is suffering in severe agony, who should have been crying out, why? Since he's in fact the only innocent man ever. Who, who should have been so overwhelmed by the pain, the humiliation that he had been and was still being hurled at him. To think even anyone else would have been completely unnatural though. And yet Jesus proves once again that even as he hung on the cross, he was still reigning supreme on his throne. We all know why Jesus did this, why he said these things. Jesus loved his mama. He was showing how good he was by caring for her, even in the midst of carrying his cross. And we're right about this but not in the way and extent that we think. Verses 26 and 27 are not so much concerned for his mom. He didn't utter these words because he was concerned that his mom would not be taken care of. She had other sons, his half-brothers, to care for her. This is not why he said these things. This is not the meaning behind them. Just as every other word that Christ utters on the cross was made in order that we would focus in on his divine mission, so are these. Because if he was truly concerned for the earthly care of his mom, 
He would have, should have directed his statement to the unnamed, the unnamed disciple. He would have said, you there, you take care of this woman. Care for her as your own mother. But he didn't. He told this unnamed woman, just as she was the first time that she was mentioned in this gospel, woman, behold your son. Why? What is he getting at? Well, you've heard me admonish you to make these, your covenant brothers and sisters, the most important people in your life, more important than your own blood relatives. And I pointed out the divine nature of the body of Christ, the importance that the Bible places on it as the reason for doing this. And there is no clearer message that this is the will and desire of the Lord than these two verses here. This woman had sons. We don't know whether or not Joseph, her husband, was alive or not, but she had family. She had sisters. She had her aunt and uncle, her parents. I'm sorry, the parents of John the Baptist. But here, she is told that this man, the one that was standing next to her, mourning with her, the one that is described as the disciple that Jesus loved, this man was to be her son. And the use of that word woman is meant that way. It's specific, just as it was the first time when it was used in chapter 2. It's not a derogatory term. Jesus didn't use it in chapter 2 because he was upset or annoyed with his mom. And he doesn't use it here for these reasons either. He uses it specifically to distance himself and his relationship from her in the earthly realm and focus her attention and ours on the heavenly realm. Was Mary his mother? Yes. But more importantly, she was his son, just as you are. She was his. He was not hers. And this relationship is the one that matters most, which is why he uses that term woman, a term that is warm and loving, but not in a familial or earthly sense. And then he uses that word, behold, to draw attention to this man. We've seen that word used a couple of times in this gospel. First, when John the Baptist wanted to draw attention to Jesus, when he proclaimed, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world in John 1, verse 29. And then as Pilate brought out the bloodied, beaten Jesus after being flogged, he, as he stood there with that crown of thorns pressed on his skull, that purple robe, draped across his bloodied and torn shoulders. Pilate desired all in that area that were walking past to stop what they were doing and pay attention to what was going on when he proclaimed, Behold your king. Chapter 19, verse 14. And now, here, from the cross, Jesus desires this woman who he loved with an eternal, heavenly love. This woman who had been given him as his own by his heavenly father, he desired her to take notice of this man who was standing beside of her, a man that she no doubt knew, had been around for the last three years. He is creating the heavenly family. He's highlighting the heavenly family. And this heavenly family would be the outcome of the events on that cross. A new family, 
that are supposed to be bound not by family lineage, but by blood, his blood, the blood that was being spilled at that moment for them. This, the Passover lamb, who has been prepared for sacrifice, who has been tested, who has been proven to be the spotless, sinless, he was preparing them to enter into his rest, to enter into true relationship with one another. And he was fulfilling his hour. He was preparing them to fulfill their hour too. He was preparing them, his mother and the disciple, to become the church. And this man, the one that loved Jesus, that rested his head on his chest, the chest of Jesus the night before as they dined together, the man who penned this gospel, who unashamedly called himself the disciple that Jesus loved, he was told to forsake his own family and to love this woman as his own mother. And he obeyed. Saints, how is it that we don't understand, that we don't obey? How is it that we will not look around at these who we have entered into a covenant with and understand that we are not the ones who formed this family any more than Mary and John formed theirs? How is it that we can think that we can call ourselves Christians and not covenant with the body of Christ, become part of of that body of Christ? How is it that we will not choose to esteem these people above others? That we can be so casual in our relationship with them? How often do you pray for these covenant bodies, this covenant body, these members here? How often are they in your home? How often are you in theirs? How often do you reach out to encourage them, to check on them, to comfort them? More than your own blood family? And you're appalled that I would suggest such a thing. You think that this is just me talking. But have you not read, have you not heard what Jesus himself said about your family, about your blood relatives? Luke 12, 51 through 53 do you think that I have come to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son, son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. And that division was because of the Son of Man, because he had made some to be part of his family. Or how about Matthew 12, verse 46? While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brother stood outside. His blood relatives stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hands toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Or how about Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17? If your brother sins against you, go and tell his fault uh, between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, 
tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. That admonishment of Christ here in these verses is given us to elevate the church to us, to show us how important it is, how important it's supposed to be in our lives. Christ never even deals with how we are to deal with those who sin against us outside of the church, other than telling us that we are to forgive. It's in the relationships within the church that matter to him. To the point that if someone sins against you, it's in the context of the church that you're supposed to deal with it. And if that person is unwilling to repent, to obey the church, then they are to be shunned, cast out, treated as an outsider. Are we willing? Are we placing this kind of focus and attention on this covenant that we have made with each other? Do we esteem the body of Christ? Do we esteem God and the family of Christ of such importance that if even one of our own blood relatives within this church were to disobey the church, would not repent of sin, that we would be willing to treat them as a Gentile? A tax collector? Parents, are you willing to do this to your children if they went off the rails? Brothers, are you willing to do this if your brother goes off the rail? Children, how about you? Do you value, do you esteem God and this covenant community that he has made you a part of as more important than even your own relationship with your mom and dad. This is what Jesus did. Who are my mother? Who are my brothers? And this understanding of the church, the importance and the value that we are to have for God, takes us all the way back to verse 17 of our account today. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the, pla the, called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. That verse that I explained away as a technicality. That even though Simon carried the instrument of his death on his shoulder, Christ probably had carried a little way until he couldn't carry it anymore, and then they had Simon bring it up to him. Here's that question that I told you was important. I have a very important question for you. What is the cross of Christ? This is important. Because he told us in all the synoptic gospels that if we do not pick up our own cross and follow him, that we can't be his. So what is the cross of Christ? Because until we can truly answer this question, we can't answer the question, what is our cross to bear? And so often, you'll hear people tongue-in-cheek say things like, well, that's just my cross to bear. They look in the mirror and, man, I'm just so beautiful. How do I remain humble with this? Or speak about that new car or the wealth that they have. That's just the cross that I have to bear. I don't esteem those things. Those things. Or others will tell you that their illness, their sickness, that's their cross to bear. But the problem is, in both of those instances, is that the unregenerate very often do a better job in dealing with those crosses than the regenerate do. 
are they disciples of Christ? What was the cross of Christ? What is your cross? Well, let's read those five times that the command to pick up your cross is given to us. Mark 8, 34 through 38. In calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and the holy angels. In that first instance, it seems that self-denial is tied in with the cross. And many have believed that if you own anything nice, that you're not taking up your cross or hating your life. But this can't be the cross. Remember Zacchaeus? You know, that wee, little lamb, that wee little man that climbed up in that tree to see Jesus. Luke chapter 19, verses 8 and 9. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since him also is a son of Abraham. He still had enough money after giving half of it away to offer to repay fourfold to any that he had defrauded. So owning nothing can't be the cross. How about Matthew 10 then? Verses 34 through 39. Don't think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I haven't come to bring peace to earth, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter, and a, and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be there of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And those Matthew verses don't give us much more clarification on what that cross is that we're to bear. So let's try Luke. In chapter 9, before Jesus commands all to bear their own cross, the account there begins with this. He strictly charged the, and commanded them to tell no one, um, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed on the third day and raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Luke chapter 9, verses 21 through 27. Those Luke verses seem to tie the cross into pain and death and into the instrument of death that Simon was carrying for Jesus. But then it's just a few chapters later, Luke recounts one more time that Jesus told those that desired to follow him what is required to be a disciple of his, a son of God, a true believer. Luke 14, verses 25 through 27. Now great crowds accompanied him, 
And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he can't be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Here again is that admonition to hate your blood relatives, to even hate your own self. And in ancient times, these verses, the call to pick up your cross and carry it, led many to, to live a life of solitude and poverty, which led to monasteries, where men and women would go and live in solitude, hardly ever even uttering a word, denying their flesh, denying their flesh sleep, food, clothes, medical help, all in an attempt to pick up their cross and follow Christ. But is this how Christ lived? If this was not his cross, then how can it be ours? And then the fifth time that the issue of picking up your cross is mentioned in the gospel, John chapter 12, verses 20 through 26. Now the word cross is not mentioned specifically there, but that thing is. But I'm sorry, but what that thing, that cross is, is explained to us there. John 12. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks, so these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But it, if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Hearing the cross again, here's that cross. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servants be. If anyone serves me, the, honor will fa the Father will honor him. Okay, so you're sitting in there thinking, I'm no closer to understanding the point that you're trying to make than I was when you started trying to make the point. I don't understand what you're trying to say, David. I still don't understand what my cross is. If it's not the circumstances in life or illness or sickness or even going to church, what is it? Well, the easiest way to get what I'm saying is to jettison those things that the cross can't be. And the first of them is the cross can't be the cross. The instrument of death that Jesus would die on was a cross. But that is not the cross that we are told that he was bearing. Nor is it really the cross that we are told of our verses today that he was bearing here. It can't be this instrument of death that he will die on. Since many thousands, if not millions of people, died on that cross and went to hell. So it can't be that instrument. The second thing it can't be is the circumstances in life. In none of the Gospels does Jesus tell us that we are to have a stiff upper lip and, as we suffer and suffer well. And multiple millions of people choose, choose to suffer for such causes as communism, Buddhism, Mormonism, Muslims, and they suffer well, and they die destitute, and they go to hell. So if it's not self-denial, what is it? And it can't be material possessions. 
of the world either. Even though the Bible tells us not to love the world or the things of the world, that any that do love these things can't have the love of the Father in them. Because we've seen in our account today that Jesus had things. He even had a garment that was of such a value that they didn't want to rip it. Are we to think that Jesus didn't have the love of the Father in him? Our Christ, our cross is all tied into the explanation of the cross as given to us in John 12 verses when Jesus said, now the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then he explained his mission here on earth by using the example of a grain of wheat dying in order to produce fruit, which is tied to the instrument of death that is called the cross, which is what is happening at that moment in this account given to us today. His cross is all tied up and explained by that thing that he called his hour. The one that he told Mary, his mother, was not at hand back in John chapter 2 when he first called her woman. The one that prompted Peter to give, to pull him aside and try and give him a pep talk about using positive language and thinking positive things about his future. After all, doesn't God have a future and a hope for you, Jesus? We're told of Peter's arrogance in Matthew 16. And it's this event that has Jesus tell Peter, the one who just proclaimed Jesus as, as the Christ, the one that Jesus just said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It was after that affirmation of Jesus as Lord by Peter, and after the affirmation of Peter by the Lord, that Peter then decides that he knows best, and he corrects Jesus about this hour thing. And it's then that Jesus tells Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but of the things of man. Which brings about that sixth time that Jesus commands us to take up our cross, verses 24 through 28. So what was this hour that Jesus was always talking about? The one that he told his mom that was not at hand at the wedding, but was at hand when the Gentiles desired to see him go in Jerusalem just a day or so ago. Back in chapter 12 of John, we heard Jesus say this. And keep in mind that in our time-space continuum, that what he said was less than 48 hours ago from him being nailed on that cross. He said in verses 27 and 28 of chapter 12, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And then Jesus explains the glorifying of his name. The hour that he came for, beginning in verse 44 of chapter 12, when he cried out, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but him who sent me. And he said, For I have not spoken of my own authority, but the Father who sent me. He has himself given me a command what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. The hour of Christ, the life of Christ, the cross of Christ are all one and the same. And they all can be summed up in one word. And it's not self-denial. It's obedience. 
I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of the Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on that last day. John chapter 6, verse 38 and 40. You don't think obedience was his cross? How about Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 through 10? In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Or how about Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11? Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave. And yes, that word there is doulos, not a servant, a slave. Being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming, becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And then Paul fin Paul tags on right after that, a therefore. You guys know what, when you read in the Bible what a therefore means? You're supposed to ask yourself, what's it there for? And it goes back to what it says. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Verses 12 through 13. It was because Jesus loved the Father and obeyed that he was able to succeed where Adam failed. It was because he picked up his cross and denied his flesh, obeyed the Father because he loved the Father and submitted to the word that he could be the high priest in the line of Melchizedek. It was because he didn't love his life that he could be the perfect lamb of God, that Passover lamb that takes away the sins of the world and makes atonement for us. Obedience to the word was the hallmark of his life, which is why we have verse 24 from our text today. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots to, to, for it to see who it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothes they cast lots. How often in the Gospels do we find that phrase? To fulfill? And how often do we just jump right over the meaning of it? Or we will use that as proof that Jesus is Lord. Instead of understanding that his life was all centered on fulfilling and submitting to the word. Obedience to the word is the cross of Christ. And this is why we have the end of verse 27 too. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. John loved Jesus, and he demonstrated that love by obeying him. 
and esteeming this woman above his own family and heritage. And the manner in which we are told that he obeyed Jesus is told to us so that we would tie his obedience in with the hour of Christ. That John's hour flowed from Jesus' hour. And that Jesus' hour became John's hour. So he took this woman in his, as his own mother, even though he didn't carry her blood. Because they were united by a much stronger, everlasting bound, bond. They were bound together under the blood of Christ. And for this reason, John submitted. And Mary submitted. And all that are his will submit. They will take up their own cross, deny themselves, their lives, their desires, their own will, and obey God and live. How about you? Are you willing to pick up your cross and follow Jesus, who out of obedience and love for the Father obeyed the word and denied himself? Do you love God? Do you love him more than those who are, of, who are of your own flesh and blood? This is what that all those hate your mother and your brother verses are about. They're not so much about you thinking less of your family, but you thinking more of his family. Do you hold that that bond that you have with your covenant brothers and sisters is stronger more eternal and of greater importance than the bonds that you have with your own blood relatives. This is the meaning of these last verses from our text today. Mary had other children. John had another mother. But because of the Son of God, the Lamb of God, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, because he was on the throne, ushering in the kingdom, through the shedding of his blood and purchasing a people that were given him by his father, a people that would be called his church, the ecclesia, the called out ones. Because of that, all other relationships were to take a back seat to the ones that he was creating in him. The man of the hour was having his hour. And he was succeeding where that first man failed in his hour. He was triumphing over the powers of darkness, the spirit of this age, because out of love for the Father and obedience to the word, he took up his cross and is now dying on the cross. In order that he could be separated from the Father and have the wrath that we deserve, which is his wrath, the wrath of the Holy Spirit, the wrath of the Father, to have the wrath of God hurled with extreme prejudice against him in order that we could be redeemed for all eternity. And this is why Christ could unashamedly compel all that are of him to come and die with him, to die to self in all ways, and to live to life for all eternity. This is why he could declare in Matthew eleven twenty-five through 30 when he said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except for the Father, and no one knows the Father except for the Son and anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And then he says to us, Come to me, all who labor, 
and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This section of scripture is all about the cross. But very little detail is given to, to us concerning it. Because the instrument of death that was used in bringing about eternal life was of less importance than the fulfilling of the hour that Jesus lived for, was born for, and died for. The cross that he bore every single moment of his life, the cross that we are told that that to belong to him that we must bear as well. And that cross is obedience to his father. Obedience to the word. This was his cross. And this was his hour. And he is the man of the hour. He succeeded where we failed. And because he is the man of the hour, because we have been redeemed, because we have been bought and washed and empowered to pick up our own cross and follow him, we can do this. And we can only do this for one reason. Because he did this. We can obey and pick up our cross this very hour. Because he is the man of the hour. Saints, I admonish you. Look to Christ. See him in this Bible that you hold in your hands that you are so unwilling to spend five minutes a day reading. This is our cross. And if we are to belong to him, we must obey it. We must submit to it. You cannot separate God, that thing that you want to belong to out there, from this, his word. They are one and the same. And if you think otherwise, you're worshiping a false god. If you want to know your God, read the word. If you want to hear God speak to you, read it out loud. This is our cross. And Christ said that his burden is easy and his yoke is light. We can do this because he succeeded. We can do this. Let's pray.